Let's take a look at 1 Thessalonians. Last week we had an overview of the book of 1 Thessalonians, or uh, 1 Thessalonians for our Scottish and Presbyterian friends. Uh, as we are uh, looking at it today, we're going to go from doing the whole book uh, to just doing one verse. So today, as, as we get started, we want to have in mind what we learned about the whole book. Paul is writing this to a, a young church, a, a new church. They're maybe a year old, probably less than a year old. He only got to spend three weeks with them, uh, less than a month, to get this church started and off the ground. And they're in the midst of hot persecution. And he was concerned for them. And so when he got a good report from Timothy that they, were, they weren't foundering, they, they were actually flourishing, He's writing to them now with an exhortation and encouragement and, uh, and a prayer and instruction for them as they go forward. We learned last week the, the core reality of this whole book, and this will govern our study as we go through it, is that the reality of Christ's return is our source of hope in a hostile world. The reality of Christ's return is our source of hope in a hostile world. The Thessalonians were able to hold on to hope, and Paul is encouraging them and exhorting them to hold on to hope because of the sure and certain return of Christ for His bride, for His church. When Christ returns, all will be completed, will be made right. Justice will be final and complete. There will be no more sin. There will be no more tears. There will be a new heavens, a new earth with God's direct rule. And those who are in Christ by faith now will reign with Him forever. Those who have died in Christ will be joined up with Him. And we will be joined up with Him. And His kingdom will be established in a direct and literal sense. So today as we get into this, we're going to do a part that maybe. Maybe you overlook a lot when you read. I don't know. If you're like me, it's real easy to, to, to see the greetings and, and uh, you know, the well wishes at the end of these letters and just kind of uh, blow by them and get into the content. I want to get to the meat. Let's get to it. Well, it turns out that, in case you didn't know, every word of Scripture is God-breathed and is useful. And so as we, as we process this, we want to take a look at 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 1, verse 1. Might be the shortest uh, text I've read to you to start a sermon so far. Here it is. Starting with verse 1 and actually ending with verse 1. Paul, Silas, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace to you. Now, as you read this, if you have a different translation, it might sound different. It's the Word of God presented to us. This reading of God's Word, though it is a greeting itself, is authoritative. and We need to honor it and receive it as God's Word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we, uh, as we study the Scriptures here today, we want to know You. We want to submit to You. We want to learn more about Your intent for us that we might be transformed by it. So help us, Father, to uh, 
to dig into this, to understand the whole counsel of Scripture, and to be able to be your people, your church, as you build your kingdom here in us. Father, thank you. Now guide us. Change us. Make us fully, completely yours. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's a short verse with a lot actually in it. As Paul and Silas, or Silvanus, if you have a, an ESV or, or uh, other translation, you might see Silvanus. Uh, Silvanus and Silas, just uh, alternate, same name, same guy. So uh, Paul, and he includes here his, uh, his partners in the ministry, Silas or Silvanus and Timothy. I'm reading, as you know, from Heaven's Preferred Translation, the uh, NIV 1984 edition. But I've really gotten hooked lately on, uh, maybe you've seen it, the Berean Standard Bible. I'm really impressed with it. It's the closest thing to that original NIV that I've found. I like the ESV. Uh, ESV is a good literal, mostly literal translation on the literal end of things. Uh, sometimes, kind of like uh, the, the, some of its predecessors, the RSV and the New American Standard, uh, can be a little choppy at times to read, can be a little confusing in the English, but it's a good rendering uh, overall, um, the Berean Standard Bible takes the same approach as the NIV 84. This, by the way, is not the sermon. This is free. This is just for you to, to hopefully have some help. I know some of you uh, are, are kind of new to the Scriptures and uh, maybe looking for a Bible yourself. Uh, these are uh, some translations that I recommend. There are no major translations of the Bible that are bad translations that you're going to find in your Christian bookstore, but they are. there's a continuum, and you want to make sure you understand what you're getting. New Living Translation is a good translation, but it's a more dynamic translation. It's a little more interpretive, so we've got to be careful about some of these things. The Message is a very dynamic translation, often referred to as a paraphrase. Because it's those, those on the dynamic end, the dynamic equivalency, are trying to get you to think the same thoughts, feel the same feelings as the original hearers or readers would have had. But that means they to do that, they have to play a little fast and loose with the words in English as they uh, get translated over. There's no actual, there's really no such thing as a literal translation. Uh, we, we have a transliteration if you have like an interlinear Bible where it'll transfer word for word, but that's not really a translation. Anytime we go from one language to another, there's always a bit of interpretive license that goes along with that. And if, you, if any of you speak Spanish or German or Hungarian, you know that. There's no exact equivalency that goes across from language to language or even from culture to culture. So it's all flavored by that. So when you hear me jokingly, facetiously say that the NIV 84 is, is heaven's preferred translation, that might be why it no longer exists in publication. But uh, it's because that translation uh, is, in my personal opinion, this is not, you know, there, there is no authoritative view on this. In my personal opinion, does the best job of striking that, that sweet spot of being as literal as possible while maintaining the thought-for-thought thought equivalency. I think 
After that, ESV and NLT are kind of the next. ESV a little more liberal, literal, NLT a little looser. But I really like this Berean Standard Bible, so you should check it out if you get a chance. It's easy to find online. Anyhow, back to the text. This is what we're here for. Paul and Silas, or Silvanus, and Timothy, as they are writing to the church here, they, they address it to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul adds this, this blessing at the beginning. It's essentially a prayer as he says to them, grace and peace to you. This is the, the welcome, the greeting, the salutation here. He's saying, church, grace to you. Literally, in, and this is where the, even the NIV 84, where heaven kind of shakes its head, because uh, they, they miss it a little on the rendering here. It should read, in the Greek it reads, grace to you and peace. And here it says grace and peace to you. I think this is an area where we want to be a little more literal. So if you have a translation that says grace to you and peace, kudos to you, good job, but you get a gold star. Grace to you and peace. And in some older uh, manuscripts we find the words grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, I think leaving that out is uh, another area that I would disagree with the NIV translators here. So why in the world would we stop here and, and spend time talking about this? We already know. It's, it's to the Thessalonian church. Get over it move on. Well, God chose to include it here. Because there is something that we see about the nature of the church and who Paul is talking to as we go forward. Notice this core reality that will govern our understanding today. God provides refuge from this hostile world in the safety of His family. God provides refuge from this hostile world in the safety of His family. And if that seems like a stretch for you from this one verse greeting, uh, I would encourage you to ride with me and hopefully by the end here you'll be able to connect the dots as well. And if not, I'm not doing a very good job. So, As we see this, there are some, some basic aspects that are included in this greeting that we need to break down. First, Paul, Silas, and Timothy are writing to the church. So then that leaves us with the natural question, what is the church? Who is the church? Who are they writing to? And specifically, the church of the Thessalonians. Well, what is that? Is that that different? Is it a different church? So what is the church of the Thessalonians? And clarifying, it's the church of the Thessalonians in God. right? In God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. What does it mean then to be in God? To be in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And further, why is, he, why is he telling them grace to you and peace? What's, what's his point? Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're going to walk through this and take a look at it. First off, let's, let's get right into uh, what is the church. You can fill these blanks in for yourself. I'm going to, uh, it's a little bit longer. Uh, sections for you to fill in, so I'll try to give you some time for it. Notice this. The church is the people of God 
called out from the world by His grace and set apart for Him through faith in Christ. Now there's more, but there's not less. This, this is the foundation. We'll talk a little bit more about some details to it. The church is the people of God. Okay, and we, we often talk about, I'm going to go to the church, and we, we go to church like it's the gathering on Sunday morning, or we go to the church, you know, uh, you know, it's my week to clean the church, and so we're talking about the building of the church. What exactly are we talking about? The church is the people of God, and the people of God here are called out from the world. Called out from the world by His grace. So the, the term... Uh, that we translate church is ecclesia in, in the Greek. We see this throughout the New Testament. And if, if you're uh, in any European language, you're going to see similar things to what we, we would translate church. Kirk, if you're in Scotland. Kirka, if you're in, in Germany. There's a lot of similar things. In Spanish, you might see iglesia. Ah, now we're getting somewhere. Can you see the connection between iglesia and ecclesia? The Greek and the Spanish coming from that. So the idea of ecclesia in the Greek, this was used of the Greek city-states, where they would have a gathering of the people that were assembled. They were called out from the masses and called out from their regular life to gather together as a city council of sorts to be able to make decisions for the state. That's, that's the basic idea of the word. So when Jesus... And the apostles and the, and the New Testament writers use the word ecclesia. That's what we're talking about. People who have been called out by God's grace. Called out for a purpose. Not just called out by His grace, but set apart for Him. The people called out and set apart. We're set apart for Him. Through faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit does the work. We uh, connect with that work, if you will, through faith. It's not our faith that saves us. It's not our faith that changes us. It's not our faith that makes us part of the church. The one who owns the church, who builds the church, must make us part of the church. I don't get to decide to be part of the church. God has to decide that. Christ has to make me part of His church church. So when the Holy Spirit comes into me, I am united with the church by the Spirit of Christ in me. A couple of images that we use. First, we see the church is the family of God. It's the family of God. We use that language a lot, this church family, this household of faith comprising all who have received His saving grace by faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The church is the family of God, comprising all who have received His saving grace by faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So when we're talking about the church, and you'll notice here on your outline that we have a capital C, a big C for, for church here. That's not a universal grammatical thing, but I'm using it here and, and often do to set apart what we're talking about here in this concept from what we'll talk about in the next concept of the local church. The church is all believers everywhere at all times who have been united with Christ and therefore in being united with Christ are united with one another. We are 
in him, and therefore we are united with one, to one another. So turn, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. If you're in 1 Thessalonians, you're just going to go back to the left a touch. The pages are, are uh, the books are pretty narrow there, so you don't have to go very far. When you get to Ephesians chapter 1, take a look at, at uh, the first couple of verses. Actually, we'll start with verse 3, and then we'll skip ahead a little bit. Ephesians 1, 3 and following, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing from in Christ. For He chose us in Him, He, God, chose us in Him, Christ, before the creation of the world, to be holy and blameless in His sight. In love, <clears throat> excuse me, in love, he, God, predestined us to be adopted, notice this, to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ. That includes daughters, in, accord, in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace. So he predestined us, he chose us to be adopted, to be made his children to be given the full legal standing of His only begotten Son. So we are in Him adopted children. Verse 7, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that He lavished on us. I love that word. Lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. <clears throat> Excuse me. And He made known to us, those whom He has set apart for Himself, he made known to us the mystery of His will according to His good pleasure which He purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. Alright, so as he continues through here, um, go down to verse 11 of chapter 2. Verse 11 of chapter 2. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, that done in the body by the hands of men, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in His flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in Himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace. And in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which He put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. Speaking of those who, who were outside of Israel, the Gentiles, and those who were in Israel, the Jews. Those who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through Him, we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. All right, so there's a oneness here. There's a connectedness because we are chosen in Christ. We are united to Christ God has, has called us His children, His dearly loved, adopted sons and daughters. We are in Him, and we are then united to one another. 
Verse 19, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household. You see this family picture once again. So he's mixing metaphors a bit here on purpose. Paul does this pretty often in his writing where he'll use a, a multitude of metaphors working together. So we have a citizenship picture. We have a family picture. The idea here is unity. No longer foreigners and aliens, but we're now insiders, fellow citizens with God's people, members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Remember that in the next passage we read, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus Himself as the chief cornerstone. In Him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. So now He's shifted again to this building metaphor. The church is here a building, becoming a holy temple built together on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, specifically the teachings passed on to us from them with Christ Jesus Himself as the chief cornerstone in that foundation. Verse 22, And in Him, you too, you Gentile believers in Ephesus, applicable to Thessalonica, applicable to Three Oaks here today, in Him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit. So we see in the, in the mixing of Paul's metaphors here, this family household picture. We see also the shelter of the building that God is building. A home, a house, which rises to become a holy temple. God is doing this work. The church is the people of God called out from the world by His grace and set apart for Him through faith in Christ. It's here in the church that God provides refuge from this hostile world and the safety of His family. Before we get to the, uh, the passage that I just referenced that we would go to next, we're not going to go there next. We'll go there almost next, whenever I get to it. Anyway, so uh, turn instead now to, um, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians Chapter 12, still going back to the left. You can jump over 2 Corinthians and go to 1 Corinthians. The Corinthian church uh, is not like the Thessalonian church. Paul spent an extended period of time in Corinth. He's established them and they've been firmly rooted in truth and he's, uh, he's gotten them sound on doctrine, but they still being human beings, have sin among them. And so Paul writes uh, his letter here to correct some of that stuff, to deal with attitude issues, to deal with jealousies and controversies in the church, to deal with rampant sin in a distortion of sound doctrine, that, that our salvation is by grace alone and not by works. And so then we have some here in Corinth who are like, well, Game on. If that's the case, if this is if it's by God's grace, then my sin's just gonna make God look better, right? So party on, dude. Let's let's go. And they're sinning at levels that even the Gentiles around them, even the pagans, would not embrace. They would still see it as as wrong, but here in the church they're doing it and claiming that 
it glorifies God. And Paul rebukes them and deals with that. And one of the major things that they are dealing with in the church in Corinth is infighting. They're arguing about spiritual gifts. One person thinks the other person is getting more credit or is more prominent or I want that gift, I want to do that job and so on and so forth. So Paul addresses that. Uh, he, he, he has a, a similar chapter in Romans 12 as he's dealing with that church. It's very explicit here uh, with the Corinthian church about how they are to handle um, their, their attitudes, how they are to treat one another, to think of one another. So after talking about the nature of spiritual gifts, he picks up in verse 12 of chapter 12 and says this, The body is a unit, though it's made up of many parts. And though all its parts are many, they form one body. So it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one Spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and we were all given the one Spirit to drink. This is speaking of our spiritual baptism, being being immersed in Christ by the Spirit, not our physical baptism, which is a picture of that. So this is uh, one of the many baptisms that we see in Scripture. We are all baptized by one Spirit into one body. Verse 14, Now the body is not made up of one part, but of many. If the foot should say, Because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be a part of the body. And if the ear should say, Because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has arranged the parts in the body, every one of them, just as He wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. So what's his point? He's saying here the church is a body. Or to put it in simile form, the church is like a body. We are a unit. Uh, I used to hear a lot when I was growing up, the church is not an organization, it's an organism. We're a body. And just like your body has different parts, and, and you know all of your parts do different things. I can do this with my hand while I'm doing this with my foot, right? It, it's not the same, right? This is why my sister-in-law is such a great dancer at every wedding, because she can use all of her parts in different ways, right? You have a spleen. You have a liver. You have kidneys. Some of you are getting close to running out of kidneys. But all of these things have something to do with your body. And if they don't do their thing, then the body suffers because of it. I never gave much thought to my pancreas until this spring. And then I thought a lot about my pancreas. It had a job to do. And when the job wasn't getting done, other things suffered because of it. Because I am a whole person. And that's important for us to recognize. In our physical body, no one part can carry the load, right? My heart is crucial. Do we all recognize that the heart's a pretty important thing for our living? What if you just had a heart? You're dead. you got to have the heart, but if you just have a heart, it doesn't mean anything. The individual parts dissected and laying on a table, that does not make a body. In the same way, 
we as individual Christians cannot do and be a body. The Lord called us together. And it's crucial for us to recognize the importance of the church, the whole church. When you came to Christ, you didn't just receive eternal life. You also received a forever family. You've been united to Christ and therefore united to all who are united to Christ. And in this, you are in a relationship that can never be undone. You didn't earn it. You can't unearn it. You are part of the body of Christ. You have a role to play. Play the role. You have a job to do, a gift to use relationships that count on you. There are no Lone Ranger Christians. Now, as we consider this, it's really important for us to recognize that that's not how we have tended to see church or the faith for the last about 50 years, really. Since the early 70s, we've really seen a shift In some ways it was good, but one of the the bad parts, one of the backlashes of this, is we've gone from uh, a complacent faith for many of us, where I've been baptized, I'm a member of a church, I grew up in a Christian home, so I call myself a, a, a Methodist, Lutheran, Baptist, Presbyterian, Catholic, whatever it is. I'm part of this church, I'm part of this group, and so I'm in, right? I, I got my jersey, I'm on the team. And then... Somewhere in the late 60s, early 70s, really you see it you know, become a, a big head around 1972. We see this, this jump to, wait a minute, we need a, a personal faith. I've got I to really make this thing personal, which was always true. But then, as always happens with us humans, the devil likes to keep us on that pendulum. And so we went from, I'm... I'm God's grandchild because mom and dad were Christians, therefore I'm a Christian, I'm part of the club, so I'm good, to me and Jesus got our own thing going, I don't need nobody, right? So I can be a Christian, I'm good with Jesus, I just don't really like church. I, you know, I don't really have to be a part of the church. I'm not, I like Jesus, I, I just I don't like organized religion. That's not the biblical picture we have at all, right? What if my heart decided, you know, I like life, but I'm not really into this Zyger guy, so I'm, I'm out of here. Not only do I die, the heart dies too. The individual can't sustain life apart from the body. And I think we've missed that in recent decades, that we do need a personal faith for sure. I can't get into heaven because you're a Christian and I hang around you. You know, going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than going to McDonald's makes you a hamburger. Or sitting in a garage makes you a car. But if I think I can go do this on my own, that's like my heart sitting over there on the table and deciding it's going to keep beating. That's not going to last that long. We're called together as a body. All of us, worldwide. So when churches are burning in Pakistan, that's my brother, that's my sister. That's why we pray for the persecuted church, because that's us in a different, different place, but it's us. The church is all of us together, a family, a body. We see in, in 2 Corinthians 5 that the church is the embassy of God's kingdom. 
in this world of sin, representing His kingdom agenda among a people who reject His rule. You can see that reference in 2 Corinthians 5.21. We see also in Ephesians that the church is the bride of Christ, dearly loved by Him, for whom He gave everything in order to in order to save and sanctify her completely. Turn, if you would, to Ephesians again. We're going back to the right. Ephesians chapter 5. In this second half of Paul's letter to the Ephesian church, he's talking about what it looks like to live as God's child. He spent the first half of the book talking about what it means to be in Christ, our identity in Christ, our position in Him, what God has done for us. Now, in light of that, he says in Ephesians 4.1, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. In Ephesians 5.1, he says, Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. In other words, you're not going to get the relationship by these good works, by doing the right things or acting the right way. But if you're in that relationship, it shows up in how you live. He culminates much of what he says in chapter 5 in verse 21, where he says, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then he spends the rest of five and most of six talking about what that looks like. What does it look like to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ? And by no accident, Paul uses the imagery of marriage, sexuality, and family. God's been doing this throughout the entire Old Testament. Jesus alludes to it as he speaks of the nature of marriage and divorce and goes all the way back to Genesis. But God has established marriage, sexuality, and family to be an illustration of himself. We get to know him and how we are to relate to him by how we relate to one another in marriage and family. So he uses family talk and husband and and wife, bride and groom talk. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Here's what it looks like in your home, verse 22. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, notice this, as Christ is the head of the church. Now, there are two emphases here. There's the emphasis on your personal behavior in your home, and there's the emphasis on why you have that behavior. Why should you submit to your husband? Because there's a greater eternal reality and you are a picture of it. The way you handle your business at home is preaching a life sermon to to yourself, your mate, your children, and everyone around you. Which is why it, it grieves the Lord so much and grieves me so much and should grieve each of us so much when we see Christians get marriage, sexuality, and family wrong because we are blaspheming God in the process. It's not just that we have the breakdown of family. That's bad enough. It's not just that the breakdown of marriage harms children. That's bad enough. It's not bad. It's not, 
it's not just that. The breakdown of marriage and family harms society. That's bad enough. But it is actually lying about God. It's telling people something about what it means to be the bride of Christ, to be the church. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Notice we see body and bride together here. 24, now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands and everything. Again, why? Because you're giving a picture to the world of what the church is. The way you handle wifedom, if you will, is the way you are teaching your children, you're communicating to your husband and your own soul, you're communicating to the world around you, this is how we follow God. This is how the church responds to Christ. He continues, husbands, verse 25, love your wives. Well, that's a pretty good rule, but again, it's, it's not just about the home. Love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Now, just a little while ago while we were in Numbers, we took a look at, at God's plan for authority. And what God is calling husbands to here, there is a headship, but it's not a, uh, a personal authority. Husbands are not better than wives. Somebody's got to say amen to that, right? All right. God didn't make you husband because you're smarter or better or holier. God's assigned authority is always God's assigned responsibility. It's not a matter of ruling and, and lording it over someone, whether you're talking about in marriage or parents over children or holding office or, or uh, the leaders of the church. It's never in Christ about lording it over someone. That's what the world does. And that's why we have such a bad picture of th- that, that big scary word, the patriarchy. Because men did a bad job. And so then women, in response to men doing a bad job, did a bad job. So men and women doing a bad job of being men and women leads to more bad job men and women. And Jesus says, follow me. Stop following the world. Paul says in Romans, stop conforming. Don't don't be conformed or pressed into the mold of the pattern of this world. But instead, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Fill your mind with God's word. Surrender your thinking to the Holy Spirit according to God's Word. Then you'll know. You'll you'll test and discern what God's will is, what His good, pleasing, and perfect will is for your living. Husbands, your job is to love your wives just as Christ loved the church. Again, there's there's a direct point about how a husband is to behave within marriage. But the why is always the bigger point. Why should the husband 
do this? Why should the husband love his wife like Christ loved the church? Because he's been given the role of portraying Christ to the world. So you are the head of the family. You have the responsibility. Whatever your wife does, you answer for. Whatever your children do, you answer for. She's got her own brain. She does her own thing. But you are spiritually responsible for her. You need to take the leadership. Why are there so many women doing all the work in church? Why is that such an epidemic across our land? We see churches where you have men in leadership or in the pulpits, and the women are doing all the work. And the women are doing most of the leading. They maybe don't have the title in a Baptist church or a conservative Presbyterian church or, or whatever else. But they're still doing the work because the men are home or golfing or sitting in the pew and not singing. It's our job, men. We have to do our job. And if we will do our job rightly, if we will represent Christ in marriage, in the church, then our wives will be able to represent the church better because they get a better picture of who Jesus is. If you love your wife the way we're about to read here, the way Christ loves the church, you'd be a really hard person not to be in love with. My wife's kind of closed off to me. Maybe, just maybe, it's because you're loving her the way you think you should love her. The way the world loves rather than the way Christ loved the church. In the same way, verse 28, husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church. If you feel chilly, you're sitting in here, the air conditioner's falling on your shoulders, feel a little bit chilly, put on your jacket, you put on a sweater, right? That's loving yourself, taking care of your needs, your comfort. It should be just as natural for us to think of our wives that way, to think of their needs and their comfort. That's not a chivalry you make up from external forces That's something that comes from within as you love your wife the same way you love yourself. Jump down to, uh, well, let's go ahead and read 29 and 30. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church. 30, for we are members of his body. We are part of him. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Notice what he says next. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. So do the thing. But do the thing because that thing is pointing to a greater picture, an eternal truth. Christ is the head of the church, and the church submits to Christ. And there is a union of the bride and the groom. And he will return for his bride. The church is the bride of Christ, dearly loved by him, for whom he gave everything in order to save and sanctify her completely. What is the church? The church is the people of God, called out from the world by his grace and set apart for him through faith in Christ. So, why is the local church important? Notice he says to the church, in 
Thessalonica, or the church of the Thessalonians specifically. The, if he's just talking about the church at large, okay, this is in, in Acts chapter 2, we see uh, Peter preaching this first big uh, post-Pentecostal uh, arrival of the Holy Spirit event sermon. And 3,000 people are saved. And at the end of chapter 2, what we see is that the church, the, the people of God, are devoted to the apostles' teaching and devoted to one another. And they're gathering. And they're, they're sharing in the body and the bread so that they can remember and celebrate what Jesus did for them. And they're so, so deeply invested in one another that they bring together their goods and nobody has any needs because everybody's needs are met by one another in the church. We see the same thing um, uh, reiterated in chapter 4 after Peter and John have been imprisoned for preaching the gospel. There is a love and a passion. So why is the local church important? we got the big C, big church, but then there's the local church, real life, the people in this room here, people that are, are gathered. The local church is a particular household within the vastness of God's family. So if we're talking about all believers united to Christ and therefore united to one another throughout all time, from, from the beginning of, of the church in, in the book of Acts to now, and, and all the way until He returns, if we are all one big church, that's one big family, but the local church is like your household, right? So, you know, uh, Zyger's got a pretty, pretty good-sized family spread around, Walston's, and you've got Covert's, you know, all, all of our family, it, it extends, right? So we, and some of you are related to me, you know that. But there's only a small number of people that live in my house. And it's only the people that live in my house who are assigned chores in the house, Right? It's only the people who live in my house who have those expectations, but they're all, the only ones that get those same privileges. So you get to add to the grocery list and, and so on and so forth. Used to be a bigger household. Now it's a smaller, now it's just three of us. In the same way, this church here is part of a big family, a huge family. But we're a household. Because in the household, you know who belongs. You get to interact with them. Even in the book of Acts, when the church starts, and it's a big church, just there's only one. It's only one church, right? None of these other churches exist. There is no church of the Thessalonians, or there's no, no church in Antioch or any of that stuff. It's growing out of Jerusalem, but it's one church. And then as it expands, those people in Jerusalem don't know those people in, in Thessalonica or in Corinth or or wherever else. So how can you share your life and share your goods with people that you don't know, you're never going to see, then it's just theoretical. Notice this. The local church is the only way we can live out the Lord's commands for His church. The local church is the only way we can live out the Lord's commands for His church. Why is the local church important? Because it's the only way that we can do what He's called us to do. I can't live my life together 
with a believer in North Korea that I don't know. I don't even know that they exist. I, I have no idea. I don't know their name. I've never seen their face. I can't come and touch them. I can't give them a hug when they're hurting. I can't lean on them when I need encouragement. But I can with you because we can see each other. We're connected. There's an investment in one another. The local church is God's gift for our discipleship, encouragement, and protection. The things that we just read in Ephesians have to happen in a home. The husband and the wife, they love each other in a home, together. Not in theory, not as pen pals. It's not the same thing. Don't don't take that too far that... You're not unmarried if you have to be separated for a while and you know live by email or FaceTime. But the reality is the love happens face-to-face. The one another's happen face-to-face. It's the gathering. Remember we mentioned that word ecclesia? Called out for a purpose. Called out ones. There is an importance to gathering. In Hebrews 10.25, we're told not to neglect this gathering. Not to forsake this assembling. That's part of who we are and what we are as a church. The ecclesia in the Greek city-state was only the ecclesia when they were meeting. Now the church as a body obviously is bigger than that. But there is a uniqueness that happens when we meet together in a local place at a set time. And we can encourage one another and spur one another on to good works. The local church is the means by which the Lord ministers His grace to His people and to a watching world. We'll talk more about that in just a moment. Why is the local church important? Because it's the only way that we can live out the Lord's commands for His church. You don't have to turn there, but you can jot down Philippians 2. In Philippians 2, uh, Paul says, if you, have, if you have any benefit from being in Christ, make my joy complete having the same attitude, the same mindset of Christ. And then he goes through what Jesus did for us in humbling himself, coming, stepping out of heaven to, to put on flesh and emptying himself of all the cool stuff about being God and taking on the form of a servant. Not just a servant. That's bad enough. It's humiliating enough for God to become human. So much more humiliating, not to be king of humans, but to be the servant of humans, particularly in that setting, because there was no respect for servants. It's, it's a slave picture. Jesus became a slave on purpose. Not only that, he became obedient to death on a cross. And he did that for you as a person. For us as a body. The individual makes up the body, and the body gives life to the individual. But the big church worldwide, the large invisible church, can only exist for us in theory in this present time. Face to face is the only way we can live out the Lord's commands. Why is the local church important? Because that's how we live it out. So what does it mean to be in God and our Lord Jesus Christ? What does it mean to be in God and our Lord Jesus Christ? In Christ is one of Paul's favorite descriptors of our redeemed state because of Christ. 
In that passage we read in Ephesians earlier, did you notice how often that phrase in Christ or in Him came up? It was all through it. You you couldn't get away from it. It's the thread holding it together. In virtually all of Paul's letters, I think all of them, I say virtually because I'm not sure if I'm right about that, but but all through it, Paul keeps talking about being in Christ. Being in Christ speaks to the completely new identity of those whom God has saved by grace through faith in Jesus. Okay, it's about our, our, our whole new identity as those whom God has saved by grace through faith in Jesus. You mark this down. God's grace to us in Christ saves us in such a way that our whole being is swallowed up in Him. God's grace to us in Christ saves us in such a way that our whole being is swallowed up in Him. Our our whole self, our whole identity is in Him. And everything else becomes small. Now all of us have various ways that we might identify ourselves. right? So we might identify as an American or a man or a woman or, you know, I'm, I'm Gabe's dad. I'm, you know... I used to identify as Coach Zeiger. Uh, You might identify yourself according to your your career path and what you're doing. But that's not who we are in Christ. In Christ, our identity is in Him. We are new creatures in Him, according to 2 Corinthians 5. To be in God and Christ is to have our whole self placed within the reality of the living God by the work of Christ. That's what that whole picture in Ephesians 1 is about. is That we have been placed in Him. Hidden in Him. We'll see in a moment. When we receive Jesus by faith, God places us into Christ. And therefore, into Himself. We're united with Christ in His death and resurrection and hidden with Him in God. Turn to Colossians chapter 3. If you're in Ephesians, just go a couple of pages to the right. I'm going to take you through Philippians. Paul follows a similar pattern in Colossians and in most of his letters where he establishes uh, the eternal principles and then gives practical applications to it. Colossians 3, starting with verse 1. We're going to focus on verse 3, but I want to give you the full context here. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died. Right? This, is, this is Paul referring to the same principle he talks about in in Romans 5 and 6. You died to sin because you died with Christ. By faith in Him, you are united with Him in His death and burial, and therefore you will be united with Him in His resurrection. You died. And your life, notice this, is now hidden with Christ in God. Therefore, verse 4, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. He goes on to describe what that looks like in our behavior. But the point is, you've been put into Christ. You've been united with Him. You died with Him. You've been spiritually joined to Christ. Therefore, you are in Him and 
in God. God the Father, Son, Holy Spirit are one. So as the Holy Spirit moves you to receive the Son, the Son places you in the Father because you're in the Son, in the Spirit, and in the Father all at once. So when he talks about being in God and in Christ, that's what he's talking about. That's the picture, is that we have now had our whole identity changed and God saves us by His grace in such a way that our whole being is swallowed up in Him. So what's the meaning of this grace and peace to you? What's the meaning of grace to peace and, grace and peace to you? Notice also that in, in uh, the other translations, I would, I would include this if I were doing this translation. It's the older manuscripts that have it. That's generally an indication that it's a better place for it to be to say grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ are one. It's a, a, a reiteration. It almost, uh, almost has an echoing of Old Testament parallelism. But this picture that we see, that we have here, is that the grace that we receive is from God. So it's significant that, that it would be included there. So what's the meaning of it? Well, there are some different options as far as how you might understand it. John Piper suggests that the word that they are about to read, this letter to the Thessalonian church, is God's word of grace. It's the means by which God will minister His grace to them. And he thinks Paul is, is basically saying that. I'm, I'm praying this blessing of, of grace to you because you're going to have this grace come to you through the Word. I, yeah, that, that could be. I think, I think that maybe is at least partly in mind. I don't think it's wrong. I, I, I don't know. There are enough differences in, in what good scholars have said that I don't know that I can say any of these takes is definitive, but I don't think that's wrong. It might speak to God giving His preserving grace to the church, that He preserves us according to His grace. He saved us by His grace, and He keeps us by His grace. It might be referring to that. And I think that's also, at least partly, the, the purpose, seems likely. But it could also mean that, it, that Paul's talking about the daily benefits of redemption. That by being in the church and, and being a part of the ordinary means of grace, the, you know, being a, a part of the, the, the apostles teaching the Word, the fellowship together, prayer, and, and participating in the sacred ceremonies together, the, the ordinances of communion and baptism, that by doing this we are obtaining or receiving from God the, the regular ongoing benefits of being in His family. I think that seems pretty likely as well. They all sound good to me. I'm like, man, these guys are smart. I'm, I'm going to stick with them. In any case, whether it's one or all of these, I, I lean toward all. When it, when it seems like it could be equally all of them, I think God does a lot of both and. But in any case, it seems clear that the grace to which Paul refers is given to them both individually and collectively. So he's writing to the church. This is grace to the group. But within the group, it's also grace to individuals. Moreover, the church appears to be the channel through which God communicates this grace. 
So I think that that latter part, whether we're talking about God's preserving grace or the Word itself uh, or, or the, the ordinary means of grace, in the church, God's means of blessing us as believers is in the church, the family, the body, the bride, our togetherness. Peace seems to be the manifest result of this. When we read it, it changes a little bit of how we see it. When we go from grace and peace to you, to we see that, what I would suggest is the better rendering, grace to you and peace. There's a bit of a shift there. In other words, grace to you resulting in peace. You get the grace, and because of the grace, you now have peace. That's significant. So I would answer the question, what is the meaning of grace and peace to you this way? And you can see it's in quotes. It's just sort of a rephrasing of what I think Paul might be intending here. Do with it what you will. I think he's saying this. May you continue to participate in the blessings of being in God's family, resulting in the calm confidence that comes from harmony with the Lord. Read that again. May you continue to participate in the blessings of being in God's family, resulting in the calm confidence that comes from harmony with the Lord. I think that kind of captures the essence of what any of those takes are saying. The means of God's grace seems clearly to be His church. He, he tells us that, that type of thing over and over and over again. The entire New Testament is written for that purpose. May you continue to participate in the blessings. In other words, if I'm, if I'm severed from the church, if I'm separated, if I'm not participating in church, I'm not involved in a covenant relationship of commitment with the local church where I'm invested and I care deeply for you and you care deeply for me and we're getting together regularly to speak about spiritual things, to sing songs of worship, to sit under the teaching of, of the Scriptures if we're not there, then we're not participating in the blessings that are part and parcel of being God's family. But if we do that, if we are invested, and in this investment we are regularly partaking of what God is giving us as, to use the phrase again, the ordinary means of His grace, then, then we are built up in that participation. And being built up in Him by our gathering together and being the church together, we find a calm confidence. You might say a blessed assurance. And that calm confidence isn't a personality trait. It's not, you know, nothing ever rattles me. Although the effect of it can be very much like that. It's a calm Calm confidence that God will finish what He started. It's a calm confidence that I belong to Him, not because I am worthy of it, but because He said so. It's a calm confidence that He will do everything He promised. Therefore, I know He's returning. And when He returns, we, His bride, will be with Him. And all of the things that weigh us down now, they're going to fade to black. 
they will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. We need to recognize that that kind of a calm confidence comes from walking in harmony with the Lord. When I am walking in His will, being a person set apart for Him, because I have already been set apart for Him by faith in Christ, now when I'm walking worthy of that calling, when I'm stepping with what I know God's called me to do because I'm participating in the church, I'm growing, I'm learning, I know more about God today than I did yesterday, I'm more committed to Him today than I was yesterday, I look more like the fruit of the Spirit today than I did yesterday, I'm growing in love and in a heart of service for other people, then I find that I'm at harmony with what God has called me to be. That harmony with the Lord provides a calm confidence when the stormy world around me is raging. God provides refuge from this hostile world and the safety of His family. This harmony with the Lord is the bedrock. It's the bedrock on which our harmony with one another stands. We the church of Jesus Christ, have been made one with Him, and in Him we are one with each other. We are one people, drawn from every nation, color, and class. All of the differences that would divide us have been swallowed up in Christ. In Christ there is no Jew or Greek or male or female, Bears fan or Packers fan, Republican or Democrat. All of these things, that, that these petty divisions where you know Cubs fans and White Sox fans can't get along and all that kind of stuff. None of that means anything. We can have fun with it. I'm not telling you not to have sports rivalries. Go Cubs. But, sorry, Mike. Uh, but the reality of it is none of that matters. None of it. Because we're all going to die. Good news, huh? It is if you're in Christ. We don't grieve as those who have no hope because for us to die is gain but only if to live is Christ. If we're living for the things of this world, no matter how good they seem, then die, dying is loss. But if we have our eyes set on Him because we recognize that our lives are hidden with Christ in God, then when Christ appears, when He comes back, that is our glory. That is our life. That's what we're longing for and looking forward to. And it doesn't bring fear, it brings joy. We're saved by His grace. We therefore give grace to one another. He's redeemed us by His blood to be a house united. No divisions. All of the earthly preferences, passions, and priorities surrendered to Him. God provides refuge from this hostile world in the safety of His family. We need to recognize that truth. Our brothers and sisters in Christ are the family. This family, this Christian family, the church, must take precedence over even our dearest earthly family. I'm not saying that Jesus did. The church is God's number one priority on this earth. Should it not rightly be ours as well? It's crucial for us to recognize the importance of this. And so, 
as we walk through this hostile world, we will struggle if we deprioritize the church, the local church, the committed covenant relationship that we have with that church. Every single time, every single time your heart stops working or your kidneys fail, it harms you. And every single time we put something else ahead of the church, it harms us. Every single time I fail to use the gifts that God has given me for the sake of the building up of His church, it harms the church and it harms me personally. And every single time I fail to love my brothers and sisters here as if you are my own body, I'm harming the church, I'm harming myself, and I'm breaking the heart of the groom who will return. Let's be the body together that we might receive daily the benefits, the grace of being in this family and find refuge from a hostile world. Peace. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we um, as we close out the service today and we we sing this closing song and go about our business and, and have dinner together and whatever it is that we're going to be doing this afternoon. Lord, help us to be consciously, actively your church. To live as a family, as a body, as your bride, Help us to recognize your deep, passionate, intimate love for your bride. And give us that same love that we might find refuge in the safety of your family. Make us a united church. We pray this in the name of your son Jesus. Amen.